This is Headshots, the psychology and gaming podcast with your hosts, Josue Cardona, an engineer-turned-mental-health and ed-tech guru, and psychologist and game scholar, Dr. Kelly Dunlap. Hey everybody, I'm Josue Cardona, and I have a very special guest today who I'm interviewing, the one and only Kelly Dunlap. It's a me. <sighs> so it's a very special version of Kelly that I'm interviewing today. And you know, I mean, it's still it's still the show, right? I mean, but but I say I'm interviewing you because you just you you did it, Kelly. You made it through another master's degree. <laughs> yes, yes, I the, did. The, the second of many. Um, I, many I more to come. Some people, I, I, some people can't. I don't know if you can be done. Well, I, we'll I keep saying I'm done, and I think maybe this time I really mean it. We'll see. And and I can tell that you've you've just finished a, a degree because you sound very sick. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the way it works. It uh, it sucks everything out of you to get that capstone done. So, but I'm yeah. here and I'm super stoked. <laughs> Your immune system is like helping you out till the very end, and once you once you turn in that last that last assignment, that last project, that dissertation or whatever, your body's like your immune system just goes on vacation, <laughs> and you sound like you do now. So it's yeah, good. well, I mean, you 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 beg and barter with your body, just like come on, hold it together, just hold it together until the finals are done, and then you can do whatever you want. And it takes it me very literally when I say that. So uh, <laughs> finals are done. <laughs> I, I walk graduation on Wednesday, so it is uh, – my body is, is taking the toll that I promised it all last year, so. Well, congrats on being school-free. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, of course, we're talking about a game design degree, and um, I don't think we've mentioned that on the show in a while, and, and I wanted to take the time to kind of reflect since it just happened, <laughs> talk about your your capstone project, what that was like, and then – like it's weird because when we started, um, when we started podcasting, and when I when I met you initially, you were a a gamer, but you weren't a game designer. Not by not with, not with the cred that you have now, right? So well, I, I'd never designed a game. So okay, okay, yeah. So you never said it. <laughs> Good, yeah. So so what degree did did you just you know did you just wrap up and and. And what what was that like? Like, give me an origin story. Like, how did this happen? Okay. Well, if we if we went at the origin story, I graduated my doctorate in clinical psychology in the fall of 2014, and I found this really terrible uh, limbo that I think a lot of aspiring psychologists face, like this this purgatory of nobody wants to hire you because you're no longer a student, and you're not licensed yet. So there's this really horrible situation where. It's it's almost impossible to get a job if your the place where you did your resident residency doesn't offer postdoc. I was kind of hanging around trying to find something. I I didn't know what, and I happened to go to a Red Cross event that was about uh, games and health, specifically like international humanitarian rights and video games. And while I was there, I met Lindsay Grace, who is the the director of the American University uh, Game Lab and the Masters of Game Design program there at AU. And I met him, and he told me about this uh, this fellowship program that they were doing, where they were going to give a full ride plus stipend to to three students who were interested in 
the intersection of video games and journalism, because it was a, a combination of the School of Communication and College of Arts and Sciences. And I told him, I, listen, I don't, I don't know anything about journalism, but he encouraged me to apply based on my background with games and psychology. And about two months later, I found out I got it. And a month after that, so January 2015, I started a game design program. So I, basically in the span of four months after graduating with my doctorate, I started a master's program like you do. And a podcast also. And a podcast <laughs> also like you do. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like an over an overview. It's not your typical game design program. This program in particular was for uh, persuasive games. So the idea that you're making games about things, not necessarily, you know, the next you're probably not going to learn how to make the next AAA shooter or you're not going to necessarily become the next Bethesda, although you could. It was more about making small games, uh, impact games, games for change, games that have a purpose behind them. And so they really were culling people from all different backgrounds to try and get this really great cohort, which they did. Uh, they had me as a psychologist, the two other in my cohort. One was a cartoonist, one was a video editor. I also had like an English major. There was a philosophy uh, major. There was a biomedical engineering student, uh, of course, computer science students. So pretty much across the entire spectrum, just pulling people in to make really cool things that you wouldn't normally get without those diverse perspectives coming together. Biomedical engineers are very cool, I hear. Well, she was at least. I can't speak for the guys. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Love much, much love her way. Who was a biomedical engineer before, before gaming? So just going back to our origin stories. Yeah. Um, yeah, that idea of persuasive play. I was. I've always been really curious to see how you guys talk about that within the program because the it sounds. First of all, it's two P's, right? Mm. Sounds cool, but what does it mean? You know, like how how do you guys talk about it, or do you guys ever really talk about like this isn't persuasive enough, or or do you have is is you know the idea of persuasion a like a core, you know, um, value that's going through different classes? Well, they actually ended up dropping the phrase game design and persuasive play <laughs> to just game design because it has a lot of negative connotations. Okay. The idea gotcha. that persuasive play is somehow manipulative, which is definitely not not the goal. But as far gotcha. as and a title such as making games that are about things doesn't sound particularly academic. So right no. now it's just game yeah. design. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's an entire course called Games and Rhetoric, which was like the bane of my existence. And I apologize to my professor, Mike Trainer, who uh, suffered through that with me as he's a very philosophy-minded individual. And I am I am not. I am, it, it is or it isn't. It is real or it's not. It's science or, you know, there's a scientific explanation for the things that we do. And he, a lot of the class was, what is a game? What is play? How do you really know if you're perceiving something? And I'm like, oh my gosh, because the electrons in your eyeballs are lighting up and transferring electrical impulses to your brain. Uh, but no, I mean, the entire class just on the, the rhetoric that games can deliver. So there's some really obvious ones. Uh, Mole Industria, which is a game company that makes really um, rhetorically clear games, such as there's one they have, it's about McDonald's. And basically, you pulverize an indigenous rainforest to satisfy your customers. So again, the rhetoric not really subtle there. 
versus a game like Grand Theft Auto, which has um, a lot of rhetoric in it that I I think a lot of people miss. So just a, a quick example would be in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, there's the the eating system. Like you have to eat to maintain your strength, but the only thing available to eat in this low income neighborhood is fast food, which is a really striking, accurate commentary on what it's like to live in places that don't have access to healthy foods. The, what games are saying to you when you might not expect that they're saying it. There's also another class which I really enjoyed called Games in Society. And it's all about how games and society interact. So, you know, the evolution of games from, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago with like Mancala and chess and up to like pinball and now our digital games and going forward into VR, like how does society and games interact? And then another one was games and research methods. So it was literally an entire class about uh, how, how do you research games? How do you talk about games? Are games worth researching in a scholarly way? So this was awesome. I mean, the, the first couple of weeks were like quantitative versus qualitative. So I was just giddy with joy while the rest of my classmates suffered. That's just one set of classes that have to deal with the more uh, persuasive or social impacty part of games is that it's not just about making the game. You need to understand where the game comes from, where these design concepts come from, which dovetails a lot with psychology, actually. You know, why do people do what they do? Do a lot of game design programs have those type of classes? Like, are those the the core basics of any game design program that you're aware of? I don't, I don't know. I can't speak for a lot of courses, but I know ones that are really um, popular, like Full Sail University. It is just a dedicated like game development course. So you learn the engines, you learn the coding, you m- probably learn like 3D modeling or some kind of art aspect to it. But I I don't think that many programs have the kind of balance between actual hard coding skills and plus the the aesthetic of game design itself and the art, plus the academic part of like games and rhetoric and games and society. Yeah. Plus, actually, and then I forgot, this is a master's program. So... Like if you were going to straight out of high school to study game design, it, it likely wouldn't be like this. It would be more making of. Gotcha. And what about the the fact that is it still part of the – I'm just curious. <laughs> is it part of the journalism program still at, at American University? It's this really weird chimera that sits between the College of Arts and Sciences and the School of Communication. So um, something to keep in mind is – uh, that was the the jolt. That's what it was the journalism and leadership transformation was called jolt. That's the fellowship that I got to to go to school. The game design program is completely separate from that. They they are two distinct things. So you can get your uh, master's in game design, and then what I did was basically I was allowed to be a student while working as a professional within this fellowship to work on games and journalism. Okay. 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 All right. Now I'm less confused. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad I, I'm glad I could be some clarity. <laughs> so what did you do as part of the JOLT program that was kind of unique to, you know, unique to your experience that other students who are now, would now be in the game design program w- would not be able to do? Well, one thing that really came from it is I had the opportunity to speak at GDC, the Game Developers Conference, which is the largest conference for game developers in the U.S. Stop Possibly. rubbing it in my face. Come on. 
possibly the this. world, maybe the universe. Uh, and that the panel that I was on was specifically about what we had learned in the last year and a half about the intersection of games and news. So things like it can be difficult to design a game for news organizations because they there's a lot of hierarchy involved in making decisions in a way that usually when you design a game isn't that way. Like you make a game and you get feedback and you you iterate and you make it more and you take the feedback and it's just kind of this ever-evolving process. News organizations want um, a little more structure and a little bit more trust with the people that they're developing with. And, you know, since games are a new language to them and, and to their credit, a lot of news organizations are adopting playful approaches to news, they're still learning about what they want. So just kind of the the dynamic between merging these two worlds of game design and journalism. And that's what our, that's what our panel was about. So that was a, a specific result of Jolt. We actually were accepted to South by Southwest for this year and are going to be having a similar talk, uh, kind of like a postmortem since the program ended, obviously right now, about what we did in the past two years and lessons learned. Very cool. Now that said, that's not that there's not opportunities for uh, non-fellow students. Uh, I know a lot of my friends have had internships at local game design companies. So either as an artist or as a developer. So those opportunities are definitely there. Uh, we often have speakers come in. We had the guy who made That Dragon Cancer. He did a screening at AU and had like a Q&A session afterwards that you could talk with him. Our professors themselves it feels like they know everybody in the game space. So you're almost getting one-on-one FaceTime with uh, some pretty influential people in the game uh, design area. So yeah, there's there's definitely opportunity, even if as not being a part of the fellowship. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, I remember going to Games for Change this year and seeing a presentation by Lindsay Grace. You were in the slides. It's pretty funny. I kept trying yeah. to take a picture of you in the slides, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> I it's weird. I can't prove it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you were there, but you weren't there. Um, no, no, it's it's very cool. And I've obviously been uh, kind of following what you've been doing since we, we started speaking on a weekly basis since um, you started the program. So I'm super excited. And uh, so what, what did you make? What did you do? Like, what was it like? Give me, I'm just going to sit back. Tell me a story. <laughs> All right. Well, going into this program, my little catchphrase, I guess, was I want to make games about mental health that don't suck. Because there's a lot of games in the mental health space that are not great, either because the emphasis is on the game and it loses some of the um, empiricism of mental health issues, or you can tell that they were designed by people who are experts in mental health and not game design. And so you get something that's very uh, either Pavlovian or like classical conditioning type of thing that isn't very fun. And so I wanted to try and and merge those two worlds together to create games that were about psychology and mental health that were fun and engaging, but still stay true to the empiricism of the, of psychology. What, what's an example of a game that doesn't suck? Well, I made a game. No, um, before that, (laughs) before that, what was, what was your bar, right? Like, what were you looking at that said that sucks and this doesn't suck? Or or were there any games that you thought were actually doing right by mental health? 
I mean, a good example would be Depression Quest. I think it's a really obvious uh, example to look at. So on one hand, I think Depression Quest is amazing from the game design perspective. That's just the way it's crafted and designed and the amount of effort that went into that game. I find to be just like really, really interesting and compelling for what they were trying to get across that, you know, when you have depression, some of your options aren't available to you. As the mental health professional, there are definitely some things in there that either made me uncomfortable or I shied away from a little bit or, you know, just just didn't feel right. Of course, with the caveat that uh, the makers of Depression Quest said that this was their personal experience. So in no way am I critiquing someone's personal experience with, say, depression. But for example, that game is all about the cognitive aspects, mostly the cognitive aspects of depression. And again, that's their perspective and it's totally le- legitimate. But I could also see people playing Depression Quest saying, that's not how it feels like for me. And then maybe not thinking they are depressed or thinking they have something else or that they're beyond help. So just kind of creating that same space that has some empirical validation to it would make my my psychologist self a little bit more comfortable. So I, I have some more examples, but I'm actually not at liberty to discuss them because these are games that are still in development that I had a chance to consult with, which is another really cool thing about being in the game design program is you get brought onto these really cool projects. And so I've I've seen firsthand the the struggle of integrating the science with the game design. Uh, this summer, actually, I was an intern at the Educational Testing Services. And while I can't speak to the games that I actually worked on, the idea that the game has to be flexible around the needs of the assessment was something that I, I really took away from that experience. And the, just the struggle of these two different worlds trying to communicate with one another and and find what works and so there was just a lot of cultural adjustment between the two. And that's that's what I've done going forward. So uh, one of the first games I made was called Order of Operations, which is basically an, an analog game, meaning it's like paper and not digital. And it was a combination of Surgeon Simulator and the children's game Telephone. So Surgeon Simulator is basically kind of like a digital version of Operation where you're really, really terrible. It's really hard to do anything in that game. You're not good at surgeon simulating, and that's kind of the rhetoric behind that game. So what we ended up doing was uh, had somebody lay down, and I traced their body on this giant piece of poster board, and then I printed out a bunch of organs, not 3D printed, although that would definitely be the next step, just like pictures, and then put them on cardboard and cut them out. And traced where they would go in the body. And the fun part is you put that up on the wall. So it's kind of like pin the tail on the donkey in that aspect. But the person who can touch the organs is blindfolded. So they can't see. The person who is able to see where the organs go can't speak. And the person who can speak can't see the body. So basically, there's kind of this three way of trying to one person's gesturing, one person's trying to interpret the gesture. The person who can't see is trying to place the organs in the right space in a limited amount of time. And when time's up, you look at how badly you did. So it's it's a lot of fun. But the the empirical part of it is when I was assigning roles, like I talked about the temporal lobe, the parietal lobe, and the occipital lobe. So like the occipital lobe could see. So there's like really basic uh, neuroanatomy involved. And then I also learned that not a lot of people know what a liver looks like, much less where it goes. 
<laughs> so there's even, you know, basic anatomy involved. And so it, it is a teaching game, but it's really, really fun. And the teaching is kind of an accident, which I, I think is, for me, definitely my style of, of play. So that's just one game that I made. I made a game where you were locked out in space and you had to, it was a puzzle game where you had to retrieve a key to unlock your spaceship and have a dance party. So was there a focus on digital versus analog? Did you have a choice at all times? Or did you all have to, like, your, I know your capstone was in Unity, but did did everybody make it in Unity? Or It's very much the approach where you do what you want to do. The The program is there for you to fulfill your perspective on games. So for me, most of the game's work was focused on, on digital, uh, but that's also my area of interest. But I also made several analog games as well. So I could have made a collectible card game, like as my capstone, for example. I actually did okay. make a collectible card game at one point. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's called Four of a Kindness. They're, they're little mini health cards that uh, are hidden around the university where you find, when you find one, you pick it up and it has like a really, really brief breathing exercise or cognitive reframing, all based on you know work that I've done in therapy and, and based on CBT and DBT. And then if you text the number on the card, it brings you to a Tumblr page that has a, a longer explainer about that technique. So if it's like a guided meditation, it'll give you the full guided meditation and where that comes from. And basically you quote unquote unlock the cards. You can collect all of the anxiety cards. You can collect all of the overwhelm cards. And yeah, that was a project I did this semester for a different class. Hmm. And we and we had somebody make uh, like this huge turn-based RPG game. And we had another one who made, it was a, it was a hybrid game between uh, analog and digital where they basically made a makeup cabinet out of cardboard and they put a flat screen like iPads in there to act as mirrors. Hmm. And based on the piece of makeup you picked up, you would touch it to an RFID reader and it would tell you what it is and like what skin tone it would be good for and give you a compliment. And it was just a really cool, like physical interactive uh, experience. Okay. So then, uh, so when, what was the first digital game you made? That would be the, the locked out game in space. Uh, the, the world I designed was, it looked like the brain. So it was all pink and squishy and you had to collect little dopamines that were jumping up and down around the brain and then throw them at this angry troll that was standing on a bridge. And once you hit him with enough dopamine, he disappeared and you could get across the, the bridge to pick up your key. <laughs> Where was the space part? What's, what's the... Oh, um, your, your spaceship is like you're just kind of cruising around in space and you realize that you locked yourself out of your spaceship and you know you have a spare key in three parts hidden in three different worlds. So the world that I made was a, gotcha. was a brain okay. world. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> it makes total sense. Really, it does. <laughs> was that one of those things where, like, this is the perfect title. I need to I need to make something up that goes along with it. No? No, I, okay. I honestly don't remember where the genesis of that came from, other than I think one of our assignments in 3D modeling was to make a spaceship. And since we already had that asset, we're like, okay, what can we do? Three people dividing the work evenly, and we already have a spaceship. Let's make a game about a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, very cool. So, so yeah, I mean, coding. How do how do you feel about um, how do you feel about that? <laughs> it is not my superpower. I will tell you that. But I did get through basic and advanced game dev, which is all Unity, all C sharp. So I survived. 
uh, mostly through the grace of my professors, because again, another awesome part of the program, and they're not paying me to say this because I'm free and I'm done and everything, and they're graduated. They got nothing on me now. But uh, like our one of our on our final exam, we were supposed to make a procedurally generated tree that continued to spiral upwards just infinitely, and I just couldn't do it. Like my tree just <clears throat> that's pretty much what it did. It it would expand every direction but up. And I slammed my head against the wall so many times with that. And at the end, I brought it to my professor, Josh, and I said, I have tried. And I tried really, really hard, but it just keeps doing this. And the thing with the game lab is that they value process over product. So even though my tree did not do what it was supposed to do, I still got a passing grade because it was obvious that I had... I had worked on it extensively, that I had tried to debug it, I had looked at the documentation, I had gotten some kind of functionality, but there was just something wrong to it. And, you know, when you have a program that takes people from every background imaginable, that's a really flexible teaching approach that they've adopted. And I think that is one of the strengths of the program. It's okay if you're bad (laughs) at coding. (laughs) You'll survive, I promise. So do you did you work alone on all of these games or did you ever Oh no. No, okay. Okay. No, I would say most of the games that I made were at least in a group of two. Uh, groups of two or three are really emphasized because that's what it's like in the quote unquote real game dev world. There's very few um, people in the space that work on it alone. Because as I found out with my capstone, which I did work on alone, it's really hard to be an artist and a sound designer, and Mm -hmm. a coder, and the narrative person, and the project manager, and all of that in one is, is, I mean, obviously there's ways to do it, but it definitely helps when you've got uh, the support of somebody else, especially if it's just, hey, I have this idea, can I bounce it off of you? Yeah, yeah, and it takes a long time. (laughs) It It does. Yeah. yeah. I was telling my, uh, my cohort that I'm pretty sure I have put more time into my capstone game than I did into my doctoral dissertation. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sh- um, I'm sure of it. Right. <laughs> I mean, the dissertation was over three years, but it was you know an hour here, an hour there. But I'm I'm pretty sure in the last semester I have I have poured more time into Ellie Beagle Therapy Dog than I did for maybe anything else other than gestating a baby. Yeah, as someone who in in different ways has navigated. Everything that you just talked about in the last two sentences, right, in one way or another, <laughs> there's definitely like I'm I'm way more of a I feel like I can make like I can do more damage in that digital space than in the writing space, right? Mm-hmm. So even even like on a podcast, like I will I will tweak something so it doesn't sound weird or I'll I'll, I'll mess with a pause over and over again, but I won't do that with a sentence, for example, <laughs> right? So I mean, doing a lot of writing, doing a lot of research. I mean, you find what you need, you kind of write it down. But in the the game, yeah, like you keep moving things a little bit and here and there, and then something breaks, and then you're trying to fix it. If you break a paragraph, it still kind of works, <laughs> right? Your 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 research, um, your references, like look a little wonky, but it's like ah, uh, you know, you can you can format that a little. It's um completely different beasts. Yeah, as as I learned this semester, no game is ever finished; it just ships. Yeah, and yep. that's uh, that's kind of where I'm at. Is I feel like there's a million things I could have done more with my capstone if I had more time. But I also realized that if I had more time, I would just keep tweaking it. 
and probably never ship it. <laughs> I do. I do wanted to talk about your capstone, but is, was there anything else that you made before that that was kind of like a milestone or, or a moment where you, like a moment of growth for Kelly during the program um, before before getting to the capstone? Ooh. Pro- there was one class where we had, we were assigned a retro console and oh. we had to make a game in the style of that console in that era. What'd you get? The Spectrum, mm. which I'd never heard of. Mm. And it was apparently a console, I think, in the 80s, based in the UK. And all of its games had, like, four colors and were all really, like, weird, bizarre games. And so I worked with a team and we we created it. And then we had to show it off to an audience, not just of our peers, but people from the local IDGA, the independent, IGDA, the Independent Game Developers Association came to critique as well. And as I'm sure as you know, Josue, it's one thing to have your research critiqued. Like I I can do that all day. People can tell me that my sources are wrong or or challenge me on my p-values. And I have no problems with that. But when they start- You can argue your way out of of a lot of that. (laughs) Yeah, And your confidence gets you through most of it. (laughs) But when they started critiquing something that I had, I had made, not, not that I didn't not make my dissertation, but there was just something really personal Mm -hmm. about this game that I had made and we had stitched together through art and sweat and tears and they were critiquing it. And it was so hard to stand there. Because again, in research, if someone criticizes you, you instantly fire back with your counter argument. Like that's how it's done. In game design, one of the hardest things to do is when you get feedback is just to shut up. Like you, you just have to shut up and listen to what someone's saying because their experience as the player is probably the most valuable thing or just as valuable as your idea as the creator, as opposed to the research space where this is my research, so you can just go away. So standing there listening to these people critique everything from the way it moved to the way it sound to the color choices to the pixels it was really really hard to sit there with that critique and I, that was probably one of the biggest growth moments during the program was being able to stand there shut up and not take it personally uh, as my friend Joyce who's a listener of the show love you Joyce has said you know, when someone's critiquing your piece, it's because they want to make it better. So you just got to like not take it personally. And as she says, oh, yeah, tear it apart. Let me know how it sucks. So that way I can fix it. Well, let's put that into practice now as I tear apart your capstone project. Okay. We might be a little too close. We might be a little too close for that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'll step back. (laughs) But I had notes. I came ready. That's not true. That's not true. Um, So tell me, then tell me, um, like the biggest – and the thing that you will get the most feedback like that on, I'm assuming, unless you're going to hide this thing forever, is your capstone project. I'm assuming it's also the most elaborate game you've made. Yes. Right? Um, what – you know, now now tell me tell me about Dr. Ellie Beagle Dog. Dr. Third? Ellie Therapy Beagle. Or, Therapy no, Dr. Beagle? Dr. What? Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Ellie Beagle Therapy Dog. Ellie? Is the, is the name of Beagle, my capstone. Therapy dog. Okay. Yes. And <laughs> we made so, it. <clears throat> I did. I, I made it from scratch. Originally, 
uh, when Capstone started, and this is all in one semester. So when it started, I wanted to make a game like Papers, Please, but based on insurance forms. For some reason, I thought that would be a really fun idea to get across this thing that therapists often face between moral versus ethical. So I know as a clinician, I was faced with, do I give this person an, an incorrect diagnosis so that they can get help? and the insurance company will pay for it? Or do I give them the correct diagnosis, which the insurance company will not pay for, and then they can't get the help that they really desperately need? I want, I want to stop on that for a moment and just make sure that anybody, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking like, whoa, does that happen? That happens most of the time. like that. And there are people who live by, I'm just going to tell the insurance company whatever I want um, just to make sure that this, this client gets what they need. And and it happens, and that's not just in in mental health. That's across the board. A lot of that stuff um, happens in different ways. But in mental health, it's a special, it's a, it's a special thing that happens with the DSM and, and insurance companies. So I really wanted to give people the chance to have that kind of existential crisis. Like, what what do I do? I know what's ethical according to my standards, but I also know what's moral. And when those two things don't coincide? Like, what do you do? So I thought of a papers, please type game where you looked at insurance forms and maybe somebody's mental health form was going to be rejected because the doctor signed their name in the wrong place or the date was off and you kind of had to search and find it. I learned very quickly from my cohort during my my feedback sessions that this was dumb (laughs) and nobody would want to play it. And so after a couple weeks, I stumbled onto this idea of taking Phoenix Wright so if you are um, Ace Attorney, Ace Attorney, and pairing it with my dog, there are two things that I love, and my dog Ellie is a therapy dog, and so I basically thought, you know, it'd be really cool if instead of a defense attorney, you were going after defense mechanisms. Ah, you're so punny. <laughs> I, as you can, if you play the game, you'll know that I'm very punny. Yes. <laughs> so I, I started making this game. It is made in Unity, and there's a plugin called Fungus, which allows you to make games that are very much in the style of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney uh, very easily. So I wrote very, very, I had to write very little code. Uh, it's a very visual language. There is some, uh, a little bit of coding involved. And if you're not familiar with the Unity interface, uh, that would probably be pretty much impossible. So definitely not an entry level thing to do but also not like hardcore coding either, which is exactly where I feel like my skill level was. Originally, I made uh, Mr. Toots, who's your first character. He's a golden retriever. And originally his storyline was about Pavlovian conditioning. You know, there was a a doorbell that rung and he started barking and you had to figure out why. And it turned out that it was, hey, Pavlovian conditioning. How funny. It's dogs. And... Uh, your husband makes a guest appearance in that in that chapter. <laughs> he does. He does. He's a, he's a voiceover. Um <laughs> He, he was kind enough to do that for me. <laughs> and so when I shared this with the class, they got really excited about it. And I got the feedback that each chapter should be its own psychological concept. And so that's where the idea of defense mechanisms came in. So of the three chapters that I, I wrote, each one has a different defense mechanism at its core. And you as the player are discovering what that defense mechanism is and how it impacts your client. I mean, originally there were supposed to be five chapters, but obviously scope and time constraints limited it to two, or rather limited, took out those two. Uh, But I do want to say my final boss was supposed to be an orange cat named Cheeto, who has a toupee (laughs) and is incredibly narcissistic. 
<clears throat> is there is there artwork for this? Like, is there are there? I do. I do have a mock up of what Cheeto looks like. <gasps> okay, please send. Will will do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that I mean that's one thing. I am not an artist by any means, and so all of the art in that game, all of the images are either pictures that I have taken or pictures that I took from Creative Commons, and then I put some Photoshop filters on them. And and you created an art style. I did. I did. That's yeah. That's the really cool thing. I, I showed it to my uh, professor of of art, uh, and he's like, "This is really cool." If you hadn't told me that this was all just Creative Commons stuff, like it's a really cohesive art style and it's perfect. So don't don't sell yourself short, Kelly. I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I've really enjoyed watching people play test it because they seem to have genuine emotional reactions to the characters. And they tend to be the very, very similar reactions, which makes me all warm and fuzzy because I'm able to evoke an emotional state and a player. And I feel like that's so, as a clinician, that's so powerful that you can evoke a desired emotion in somebody that you're working with. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud. I'm going to be submitting it to a bunch of different uh, game design festivals. <laughs> um, did you evoke any um, the emotion of cringing in anybody at so many... Uh, the overwhelming number of dog puns. Most people laughed. Okay. Okay. <laughs> did Did you cringe? No. 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 Oh, no. good. I did not. I did not. Um, yeah. No. When I was looking at it, the what I was thinking was this is this is very much like Ace Attorney. I've played. I've played most of them, um, so I'm very familiar with that type of uh, uh, game, right? And and yeah, I was telling my girlfriend, look, everything looks. Like you know, she, she, there's an art style here. Everything looks like it's from the same world. These things don't look like they don't belong necessarily. Um, to me, it looks it looks legit, Kelly. Well, thank it looks you. Looks like a real game. It is a real game. <laughs> you can play it all the way through, probably, hopefully, most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I only played chapter one before we before we got to talk. Oh, so I Mr. am looking Toots. forward to playing. <laughs> I started I started uh, chapter two. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Collie. So what uh, what I want to know is, did you did you get like the secret winky face that I did in the very start of Mr. Toots when I asked you which couch he should sit on? Um. So what do you mean by a winky face? Like like there was a there's a right and a wrong answer there. I was expecting um, some sort of reaction if I chose the the wrong one, but I chose the wrong one. Okay. So the fact that you know that there's a right and wrong answer is like the wink to the psychology community. Because when when I shared it with you know non psychology people, they just think it's a fun choice. I mean, one, it's it's in there because people need to have a choice right off the bat. So I'm basically Mm -hmm. modeling how they're gonna be interacting with the game. And it's it's really a I mean, spoilers. It's a meaningless choice. You can you can pick either, and it doesn't affect anything. But one, it's modeling how do you interact with this game, and two, it gets people to engage with the game very early on. Otherwise, there's a lot of exposition, and people will probably back out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so okay, most uh, okay. non-therapy yeah. people didn't know that there was a right or wrong answer. So that's definitely my little wink. And okay. uh, yeah, and again, I definitely picked the wrong one to see just to see if something <laughs> see what would happen. Would happen. Yeah, I was like, huh, okay. Well, and then uh, based on the picture, there's an even more right or wrong, right? Yes. <laughs> but yes. Like in general, but then it's like, be kind of weird, right? Like there's obviously one that, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, just just keep that in mind because after you finish with the Collies, there is like a little mini game. And what? It's a it's an basically an ethical quandary that is based in 
you know, the psychological code of ethics. And I promise if you do the wrong thing there, you will get feedback that that was the wrong thing to do. Okay. 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 Cool. Did you want to put um, some sort of feedback in for the couch? No. Uh, again, because okay. it's, it's okay. a meaningless choice right off the bat. Okay. And it's okay. one of those things that's so small. I mean, I, I definitely could. Once at the very end of the game is kind of like a stats sheet that reviews what you did and reflects the choices that you made at critical decision points. Okay. So if I wanted to include it there, I could. But again, since it's a meaningless choice right at the start, it's more it's more of a wink than an actual yeah. uh, assessment of knowledge. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Then then yeah, I felt the wink. Yay! I felt wink that. <laughs> I winked at you. Absolutely. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. What is she doing here? <laughs> oh yeah, you know it. So, yeah. So so now that you you can do this, right? Like so so I I'm. I am right in it right now in a mobile app development, like specifically Swift IO, um, like uh, Apple development uh, program. I'm making stuff there. But in the past, I've taught game design, right, um, to kids. So very, very basic uh, concepts, um, how to use Scratch, how to use Twine. I've dabbled, I've made things, but I always want to make more stuff. And, and, and the, the app development part is like, I could make games for that. I have different ideas. Um, and I asked you a lot about the persuasive play um, side of it just because, again, not only does it sound interesting, but the the ideas that I got from from just that, that concept, right, that games can be used to, again, I understand that persuasion can sound a little like you're a marketer or you're trying to sell something. But at the but but yeah, sometimes that is exactly what you want to do, especially in like a games for change. You're you're trying to give something to people, right? And and sell them on an idea that is, you know, like like we we've talked here some things that are mental health related, and some games do like um, while we were talking, I was thinking about uh, this game called uh, No Pineapples Left Behind, right? I don't Which know that is, game. Oh, it's a it's a game where you you're essentially a school administrator, but all of the pi- uh, children are pineapples. Oh, so you're making all of these decisions that just it's 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 a it's commentary on the on on current education, mm-hmm. and you're making all of these you have all these choices, and then you're making these choices that you're like cramming all these pineapples into a classroom. Oh. You're making all these decisions that kind of just like do you let them like what are you going to do so that no pineapple is left behind. So then there's mm-hmm. all of these horrible things that you're doing just to cram people in there and make, make sure that they pass classes. You know, like education stops mattering because the point is to leave none of them behind. Right. Um, but like, there's a very clear message there. And, and like I, I, I do want to do things like that. And, and I have some ideas. And, but I, I, w- I would not call myself a game designer and I wouldn't even call myself an app developer yet. Right. But you are there. So you are like you just made something that is that is impressive. I made a thing. You made the thing. So what's what's next? Like, what do you want to make next? Is there anything that you want to make next? Well, I want to continue with Ellie Beagle. Uh, I really enjoy making it and I'm really invested in this game and I I think it could go places. So I'm I'm really looking forward to, like I said, submitting it to uh, I'm submitting it to Games for Change. There's a Games for Health uh, challenge out of the University of Utah that I'm going to be submitting it to. So trying to get it out there through that. There's also uh, through the SBIR, the Small Business Innovative Research Grant, 
that I'm looking into. Obviously, that would be a, like a, a future thing because it takes a while to get approved for that. But hopefully, maybe either through the NSF or some other organization would pay me to make more chapters. So I could continue with the defense mechanisms. I could switch to more therapy-oriented learning, so to speak. Or, you know, even change it up to where it's appropriate for like K through 12 to teach kids about different, uh, you know, different psychological concepts. And I, I, that's what I really want to do. I want to keep making this game because I think it has it has a lot of potential. And it's it's a really satisfying feeling to, to make a thing and release it and watch people play. And during one of my play tests, I had people scream. I had people almost crying. I had people just shouting at the, at the computer and it was just an amazing feeling. So I want to keep, uh, I want to keep pursuing that. So that's one aspect. And another is kind of throwing myself out there as a consultant because I, I am a game designer and I am a psychologist. And so if you're a game designer and you need feedback on a game that you're making about a mental health topic like depression or suicide, hey, I speak both of those languages. And similarly for the academic community. Very cool. So Kelly Dunlap, Dr. Kelly N. Dunlap, clinical psychologist slash game designer. Well, as uh, I, I've earned the nickname from Cherise uh, as one of my cohort, she calls me Dr. Game Dev. Dr. Game Dev. <laughs> So I mean, you know, you, you just hung a shingle outside your door, right? Like yes. Uh, uh, so what does that say? It says Kelly Dunlap, Doctor Game Dev. <laughs> I make games about mental health that don't suck. Actually, Ooh. on my on my portfolio page, I think it says, uh, uh, "Play games are psychology at play." That's what it says. Okay. That's my shingle. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm just thinking, like, what, what do we call this episode? So we can put it out there. It's kind of like its own business card, you know? Like, hey, I'm Kelly. I'm here. Let's let's make stuff. Let's do stuff. Let's know. let's call it, go to DunlapsID.com and hire Kelly and give her money so that she can pay off her doctoral loans. Exclamation point. We can, I'll work with that. Yeah, we can, <laughs> we can do something. Yeah, you'll, like you'll keep the exclamation point and get rid of everything else. Maybe, maybe keep my sort name, of. too. Yeah, hire me. Yes. <laughs> Just be yes. the name of the episode. <laughs> um, yeah, so if, Pay it, me. if anybody has any questions about the AU game program, I'm more than happy to talk about it or what it was like to make games that have a mental health twist to them. I am. This is a space that I love to death, so I would love to talk uh, with anybody who's interested. And seriously, if people are interested in contracting or consulting, I shameless self-promotion, I've worked with the World Bank, I've worked with the IFC. I've worked with, obviously, ETS, Educational Testing Services. Uh, I've worked with some news organizations. I, so, like, there's a local radio station, WAMU, uh, that I've worked with. I've worked with Vox, uh, the news company. So let me know if you have questions about those experiences or you want to hire me. Those are, all, those are all good things. Well, Kelly, I don't think you'll have any problem with people reaching out. But if nobody does... You can still talk to me Aww. every other week about psychology and games. I hope I can talk to you all the time, Josue. You're a wonderful, <laughs> magical snowflake, and I love you so much. I'll be here. No, seriously, thank you so much, Josue. This has been a lot of fun to, to talk about it and stirred up all sorts of memories, and there's no one else I would want to share those with. Yeah. Oh, that's, 
made it made it worth it. Made I, it work, waking up early worth it. <laughs> I am I am totally air high fiving you right now. Right back at you. Awesome. Oh man, now, now I want to like brainstorm this this idea of making it episodic and releasing it over time, and uh, we'll we'll talk offline. <laughs> Let's do it. Do it. Yep. And so for future conversations and past conversations um, between Doctor Game Dev and Jose Cardona, <laughs> who's like, uh, I still defy um, definition. I'm working on that. <laughs> you, you just defy labels. I do. I do. I'm trying. Um, depends who I'm talking to. You can find us at headshotspodcast.com, at headshotscast on Twitter. Dr. Game Dev is at Kelly and Dunlap on Twitter. I am Josue A. Cardona on Twitter. And if you want more psychology and just technology, not gaming-based uh, conversations similar to this one, we are at psychtechpodcast.com on Alternating Weeks. Thank you for joining us. Congratulations again, Kelly. Thank you. And we'll be back next year maybe yeah old lang syne and all that right yeah yeah happy new year everybody <laughs> <laughs>